Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the conscionable Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, Eddie? Pretty good, pretty good. It's a sunny October day here in San Diego, and um, been trying to brush up on my Scorsese, um, you know, in preparation for today. But there are notable films of his that I haven't seen. So when we talk Scorsese, and I mention my favorite films of his, you know, these are my preference, not, you know, uh, the authoritative picks, if that makes sense. Have you been watching uh, any other Scorsese just out of curiosity? That's good to know because mine is actually the authoritative list. So just so people have both, that's uh, that's actually good that we're, that we you rewatched like all eighty nine of his films five times. And I actually then... found some like personal home videos that he's never released, and I snuck in to watch those too. So I've got those. I've got those down as well. Wow. Yeah. Talk I about did, doing I do the work, Eddie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I've probably seen like twenty percent of his films. <laughs> But yeah. that's still a lot of films, so. He has so many. The guy's prolific. He's, um, I think that the only way to get um, major budgets to do movies these days for original storytelling, when it's not a sci-fi franchise or a comic book hero, is you have to have built a reputation over decades and have to be an institution unto yourself, right? So like Christopher Nolan, studios trust him now with budgets of $100 million, so he gets it. Martin Scorsese, he gets it because I think everybody, especially at this point in his career, wants to cash in on like, this could be his last, you know? So that's one way to market it and kind of, you know, uh, That's kind of what they did with Marikami, yeah? Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I think Murakami at this point just has such an established reader base that he'll sell anything, you know, and the and any publishers like would be lucky to have him. So I assume He's whoever kind of his editor for our, yeah, yeah. publisher is, they just do whatever they can to make him happy. Whereas Scorsese, I think, you know, recently, I want to say, switched uh, studios. Well, I, I mean, a couple times. So like Netflix made The Irishman, Apple made Kills of the Flower Moon, um in addition to i think paramount but um i i think to get as much money as scorsese wants he is constantly looking for other uh suitors in a way that uh probably keeps him having to constantly you know schmooze i think that would be a fun ranking of like just like uh, i mean the ringer has their like apex mountain which is not what you'd think. It's not their best movie, but it's like when they have the most juice in Hollywood. Like cachet. Like current, like, yeah, like currently, what directors have could pitch the like worst idea and still get it made? Like if they all had to go in and pitch just like a terrible totally. script, who would still get the money? Um, at this moment in time, Greta Gerwig's probably looking good, you know? <laughs> I mean, this, there's a, I think there's like five or six directors who it's just like it doesn't they kind of just like i have an idea and studios will be like fighting for before they even see you know the script yeah totally i mean yeah who would it be the tarantino scorsese um paul thomas anderson um but i guess these guys are all making movies that 
they're never they're never well with the exception of Scorsese they're usually going to come in you know on budget and make the money back I would say I like think they're, Scorsese they're, goes over quite often doesn't he <laughs> like yeah he does I, I, <laughs> I think that's why no one wanted to give him money for silence yeah you know? yeah 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 um, um, but Scorsese also has like passion projects in a way that I feel like directors who are you know studios are vying for don't really have passion projects you know they have stuff that's mainstream enough that's kind of guaranteed to sell it's not we're gonna this yeah give me 75 million dollars or 100 million dollars to make this movie about two jesuit priests you know traveling through japan in the 17th century it'll be great <laughs> you know i think i guess the biggest test would be how many of these people could have a total bomb and then still get a second one made because i think ari aster's bow is afraid is like a one for you if i've ever seen one like i don't know how that guy got that made <laughs> that was never ever gonna make money <laughs> right but, uh, uh I, I but i don't think he could like do it again right like i think they're like okay you did you did the one for you now you got to come back and do some hereditary midsummers for us you know i'd be curious to see if the you know common one one for them one for me model is still viable but only if the one for me is like at a drastically reduced budget you know and the one yeah. for them is right, right, right. the budget that you would want. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's yeah. probably, I mean, yeah, I think that's probably true for most of these directors. Sure, you can make one for you, but it's going to be three times cheaper than the one for us, that sort of thing. I think yeah. Jordan Peele could probably get, you know, whatever he wanted funded at this moment in time. But he's that's had true. kind of a couple duds in a row. So I don't know how long that's going to last for him if he keeps making movies that kind of suck even though like get out was brilliant i would say the antithesis of this is the um russo brothers who have just been making terrible movies since endgame came yeah, out yeah didn't they do that amazon <laughs> series called Citadel? Isn't that Dude, those it's like a joke how bad this stuff is that they've been putting out since that Ended. Like oh. it's just like bomb after bomb after Weren't bomb. Those the guys of, like really expensive did... movies. Didn't they do the Gray Man, the Ryan Gosling yep. Netflix movie? Like the most forgettable movie of all time. It looked bad. I like I I was not even usually if it's kind of an international espionage action movie, Ryan Gosling, I'd be like, I mean, I have free time on my hands. I'll at least watch it. But that trailer, I was like, there's no, there's no way in hell this is a, even in the ballpark of a good movie. Yeah. I'm going to, I want to read, the problem is, okay, wait, I want to read to you the movies that they've made or the shows that they've made since Endgame. Cherry, which, which was a big budget film about a bank robber. It starred Tom Holland. The Gray Man. Never even heard of it. <laughs> they did. Uh, Extraction 2, huh. uh, Little Nightmares, uh, and then they've produced a bunch of shows like you were talking about, um, Slugfest, uh, Citadel, which was that super expensive show that they pitched to Amazon that they got made, All Fun and Games, which I've never even heard of, but got a 4.4 out of 10 on IMDb, uh, and then they were also produced on Everything Everywhere All at Once, so good for them on that one. Uh, that was a hit. So I think one for one for like ten since Jeez. since since uh, yeah since Avengers. Not great, but they still keep getting money. So I think maybe if you're in the right wheelhouse, there's money to be had. 
I think it's kind of like pitching projects to like tech that aren't really tech projects. Mm. You're like, this, this is involved with Marvel. <laughs> this, is, this yeah. is like a Marvel movie. <laughs> this is, is loosely associated with it. I feel like this is a good Which segue is funny. Into, yeah. uh, Martin Scorsese's I was going to make the famous... same segue, but you take it. <laughs> we're, we're in lockstep. Okay, so Martin Scorsese, this is part of what I love about him, honestly. Uh, I believe in 2019, he did an exclusive uh, interview with Empire Magazine. And he, someone asked him, the interviewer asked him about uh, kind of what he thought about Marvel movies. And he's like, eh, it's not really cinema. It's more like a, like a theme park, you know? And the interview, I think, had many other topics. And this was just kind of like one small part of it. But then when the interview was published, it started uh, an uproar, right? And uh, <laughs> what I loved about it, Morgan, is like, you have all of these um, superhero actors coming out being like, Tom Holland, like, pushes back against Scorsese, you know, or Chris Hemsworth, like, yeah, yeah. Tears into these, Scorsese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, like these kind of, these actors who, you know, are famous for playing Thor or Spider-Man or whomever, but don't really have, come on, like, let's be honest, like real personalities and real opinions when it comes to cinema. And so <laughs> their like response would just be, the people I worked with were talented and what we made was cool. And a lot of people saw it. <laughs> like basically. And so, and then Scorsese followed up with an essay in New York Times uh, in 2019. So um, I think after this kind of, you know, backlash. And this was just kind of in a 500 to 750 word essay, just uh, expounding on what he meant by Marvel movies aren't cinema. And he uh, just feels like there's no uh, development of the interiority of character. There's no communication about something about the human experience um, being communicated in these movies. But I feel like what where the 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 essence or like the um, the essential part of this essay is when he says uh, he's talking about Hitchcock and he says some say that Hitchcock's pictures. I love that Scorsese always calls movies pictures. <laughs> like the only person left in cultures here. okay some say that hitchcock's picture pictures have a, had a sameness to them and perhaps that's true hitchcock himself wondered about it but the sameness of today's franchise pictures is something else again many of the elements that define cinema as i know it are there in marvel pictures what's not there is revelation mystery or genuine emotional danger nothing is at risk the pictures are made to satisfy a specific set of demands and they're designed as variations on a finite number of themes and i think that's perfectly accurate uh when you're watching an avengers movie and you know half the cast dies at the end of the movie you already know that they filmed another avengers movie and it's going to come out next summer and those people aren't actually dead you know so i i think he's like right on the money because all of these superheroes can't actually die die because there's so much uh money and financing and marketing put behind uh these characters that they'll all be always always be revived to some degree 
and it takes any sort of um, like surprise out of the viewing experience for audiences. So I think that's what he's um, mainly kind of uh, pushing against in addition to him feeling like they are essentially more designed by Hollywood executives than they are by auteurs, you know? I actually, uh, I think what Chris Hemworth said in response was, let's see Bill Butcher control the Mind Stone. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there's a single person listening to this that's going to understand that reference. I don't know if there's a single person listening to this at all. Chris Hemsworth just went, oh, I didn't say that. So you're wrong. I think, I think they're both in on it. Um, I would say, okay, just quickly, I don't want to do too much of a tangent on superhero movies, but I think I agree with you. I would say that I think the problem from like the thematic perspective is that the story of these superhero movies is all the same. It's good guys versus bad guys and, you know, good at wins. Right. I think that's the problem is like, you can only tell so many versions of that within the confines of like super powered beings. It would be one thing if they were making superhero movies where like the themes were not that, but that's pretty much, every superhero movie and i think the ones that have been unique are some deviation on that general theme um but anyway i think that's why scorsese movies are so interesting is because they're really not necessarily about that they're more about ambiguity and not so good people and what happens to them yeah um yeah i think that the ending of the departed uh, I saw it years and years and years after it came out, but somehow no one had ever spoiled the ending for me. So when I watched The Departed, which I'm about to spoil the ending for everybody who's listening, who hasn't seen it, um, <laughs> it was so shocking when Leo gets shot, you know, at when the elevator lands and it opens and he just gets shot in the head. And you're never going to have a moment like that in any marvel movie you know that's true and so i think that there's something uh to that and there's something to you know the financing of these movies and also part of his point of why he's um kind of opposed to marvel movies is how they're crowding out a lot of you know independent filmmakers from having their movies shown in theaters um because you know, the theaters are just showing more and more and more superhero movies at the expense of, you know, reserving some screens for um, some original storytelling from uh, independent filmmakers. And that, I think that also gets to the core of what Scorsese's, um, you know, resistance is about. Well, this is why I treat Marvel execs like I treat mushrooms. Feed them shit and keep them in the dock. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I feel like Scorsese's put his money over his mouth. He started the Film Foundation. Do you know about this uh, organization? I've heard of it, but I'm not going to be able to. Yeah, give me a reminder. It's a nonprofit that uh, Scorsese founded in 1990 to protect and preserve motion picture history. Um, according to the website mission statement, by working in partnership with archives and studios, the foundation has helped restore over 1,000 movies which are made accessible through festivals, museums, and educational institutions. Do you know the first movie that they restored? The very first movie of that thought? Ooh. Hmm. 
No, I, I don't. I don't know enough about the collection to give a guess. What was the first movie? It was 1996's The Nutty Professor. The Eddie Murphy movie. <laughs> that's that's good. I yeah. I figured. I was gonna be my first yeah. guess, but I didn't want to spoil it for everyone. So I'm glad everyone yeah. got to to guess at home. <laughs> I think that's one cool thing about Scorsese is he is such a like historian of film as well. Everyone. He's he's not just like a commercially successful director, but is also like so many directors' favorite director. I think that's super rare, even like outside of movies. It's rare that the critics and the like the fans all agree that one person really has has it. Um, I think that's one of you know Scorsese's unique legacies is that he can do things that regular people enjoy that are also to people who are really paying attention and know the history of film and all those things also brilliant. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I rewatched, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street this weekend. And if you're not paying attention to the themes and you don't care about movie history or, and you just like watch movies to be entertained, uh, you can watch Wolf of Wall Street and be like, that was a fun romp, you know? <laughs> and then you can watch Wolf of Wall Street if you're a, film scholar and like this is all about the exploitation of the uh american capitalistic system on uh you know the uh the poor and um those without means you know and, and there's enough there for you to unpack to write a dissertation about but it's also somebody can just go to the movies and enjoy it and it's massively entertaining and that's incredibly hard to do you know in this day and age I, is there a whole movie around that Margot Robbie scene? I thought that was a short. I've only seen the short film of Margot Robbie with Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know, but I did. If you're if you're referring to something like sexual, I don't know. I the version I watched was through like a streamer that cuts out all the naughty parts. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. And okay. So... Yeah. 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 They replace her with the nutty professor. So just <laughs> yeah. the nutty professor scenes. <laughs> exactly. I think, so you wanted to do top five. Did you want to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon first or did you want to go through top five and then lead into Killers of the Flower Moon discussion? Uh, I think maybe we do top five and then go into Killers of the Flower Moon as kind of like a, a preface and then okay. we can go into the movie sounds good to me sounds good to um me. well you already heard my qualification up front that you know it's a top five but it's flawed because i haven't seen raging bull you know i haven't seen like casino mm. so i know people will judge me <laughs> <laughs> i have seen i've i mean i've seen probably like I don't know if mine's more biased or less biased because I've pretty much just seen the ones that everyone says are the best. So I've cherry picked as well. Um, so there's a few there. I mean, there's not just a few, there's quite a few that I haven't seen. Um, so obviously, so I'm just going to call these more, Scorsese movies. Of the ones I've seen ranking. Yeah. These are like Scorsese movies that I like, you know, that are, that I really like. Um, Gangs of New York. Okay. Taxi Driver. Nice. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Nice. Silence. And okay. Kills of Flower Moon. Okay. 
Um, honorable mentions. I ha- yeah. Okay. Do you want some more honorable mentions? Of course I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the Departed. The Departed's a little goofy for me. You know? Like, it's fun. But quite goofy. You know? It is indeed very goofy. In a, the best way. <laughs> so, it's hard to put that, like as one of my favorite Scorsese's because I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know about this, Marty. Um, I like Mean Streets, you know? Um, I think Mean Streets, it almost establishes like the uh, Scorsese template of like long tracking shots, New York, night, um, flawed male characters who are just like forces of nature, you know? Um people that are hell-bent on whatever they're motivated to do. Um, so I think that that, I don't know, really early on in his uh, filmography kind of sets a, a trajectory that a lot of movies um, eventually follow. Um, so yeah, I would say that that rounds out. I like Shutter Island too. I haven't revisited it in a long time though, but I, uh, I'd like to rewatch that. Solid list, solid list. I think there's a lot of overlap here. So my, my five would be uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Killers of the Flower Man, which I didn't know if we were including or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goodfellas. Then I have Raging Bull, which I think is brilliant. And then Color of Money, which is probably a little out of left field. Um, but I love Paul Newman. So, yeah. Yeah, me second. too. I've been wanting to watch Color of Money because I'm like, wait a second. Tom Cruise and Paul Newman in the same movie? Yeah. I gotta watch this. I think it's underrated. In my in my opinion, uh, in my fact, uh, is, uh, I think it got Newman the and Oscar. Then my, is it? Is, it should have. He's. I mean, he's always really good. Newman. I feel like he's one of those people. Like, as time goes on, people see him as more of a caricature, whereas really he's like one of the greatest actors of all time. I mean, most people know that, but I like a lot of people are like, oh, the guy on the soup, <laughs> which is still very cool. But I think the his acting guy? is underrated. The soup guy. Yeah. Uh, and then my honorable mentions would be Casino and Taxi Driver. Um, Shutter, I, I, I need to rewatch Shutter Island, to be honest. I don't really remember it that well. I remember it being more like a, like I liked the twist and stuff, but I don't remember it being like as evocative and like thought provoking. Mm. But I need to watch it again, to be fair. I don't know if it's trying to be that kind of movie. You know, I don't think it's supposed to be. Like that, all that. I feel like profound. it's more in the Departed category of like non-serious Scorsese, but I prefer the Departed over mm. that. So I'm gonna put one of those in. It's gonna be the Departed. Yeah. So uh, Paul Newman won one Oscar, and it was for The Color of Money. Here's a question. For That's you. crazy. He only won one Oscar. That's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? This guy's in Cool Hand Luke. He's in HUD. He's in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Hustler, like Butch Cassidy, he's the had, Kid. Butch Cassidy and the Sunday's Kid, of course. Like he's had one of the most legendary careers of anybody. I can't believe he didn't win for Oscar. Cool Hand Luke. That's such like a Oscar performance. Yeah, it's incredible. No one else could have done it, you know. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, R.I.P. to the King. The no Sting? Doubt. No doubt. The Sting. That's just so it's many good movies. Here. So many good movies. Anyhow. 
Um, yeah, those are yeah, Color Money. I gotta, I gotta check that one out. Uh, did Gangs of New York did not make your? I, I forget if you had mentioned that. It didn't make my list. I need to watch it. Too again. goofy for you, or I what? Seen, I haven't seen it in a really long time. Uh, I'll be honest. I saw it a long time ago, and I barely remember it. So I couldn't, in my in good conscience, put it put it on my list. So I need to, I need to watch it again. Mm. Um, yeah, for me, I put Silence in there because. I think the the book uh, that it's based on is such an incredible, um, I don't know, story. And I think that the film captures that. And I don't see anybody else trying to make that movie or ever trying again to, to make that type of movie. Um, even though I think there was an era of Hollywood where these type of movies were coming out regularly. You know, I'm thinking of like The Mission or Lawrence of Arabia or just sprawling religiously imbued you know kind of epics um but silence is good Andrew Garfield's kind of a tough hang I have some like mixed feelings about him being the protagonist but anyhow <laughs> Andrew, um, interesting guy I yeah. so okay do you want to talk about themes then like what are some what would you say is like a Scorsese film so like I have I think one of the interesting things about Scorsese, like he's more known for like themes. And I, I guess he does have some like some tracking and lighting and like steady cam stuff that is like specific to Scorsese. He has a lot of good editing and directing. But I also feel like one of the really unique things about Scorsese, like we've talked about with The Departed and Shutter Island and things, I think he, unlike some of the people I put in his category, which is a very slim list of like Spielberg and, and a few, only a few other people of like fame mixed with talent. I think he is willing because he's such a historian of film history to kind of adapt his tools to the subject matter more than taking subject matter and molding it to his tools, which I think is super unique and something that's, pretty amazing about Scorsese. Like he'll take something like Wolf of Wall Street and, and, you know, give it the verve and the energy and the ridiculousness that that story in particular needs to sell that narrative. And I don't think I can see like Christopher, like anyone really that's a contemporary going from their typical type of like silence to Wolf of Wall Street in like a three year span is crazy. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's nuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think um, it makes him harder to pin down a little bit in terms of technique, you know, uh, aesthetically and how his movies are shot because he's so chameleonic, you know, and, and, and that's like a positive because. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Um, maybe Soder Steven Soderbergh is similar in that, you know, he experienced mm -hmm. a lot of different types of, cameras and lenses and you know adapting his type of filmmaking to the genre or whatever sure, he's trying sure. to, to do um but i think it's a i don't think he does it as successfully as scorsese of course but um i think the tendency more you know these days is to have a really signature style that just becomes your calling card um whether it's uh wes anderson or you know a lot of people i love uh, paul thomas anderson or um you know, Coen Brothers. I feel like there's more stylistic things that you can point to and be like, okay, yeah, this this kind of is uh, emblematic of these guys. Yeah, I think I, I always compare. So Scorsese to me is like the Djokovic, 
or the Nikola Jokic of like sports where before I guess the this the uh tennis analogy is easier, but like Federer was like very good on grass and like had a very like sweet stroke, like forehand in particular that he would use to win a lot of matches. And Nadal was just like obviously like the greatest clay player of all time. Um, and he was like very good at technical strong shots. And then Djokovic came along and it was like, wasn't as good as the forehand as Federer couldn't play on clay quite like Nadal, but was just like, didn't have a weakness, like could do literally everything really well. And that's kind of what I see like Scorsese as is like it, whatever shot is required, he is going to be able to pull it out and do a good version of that shot. And that's even harder in film because, you know, there's literally thousands of different types of shots and angles and lighting. And he's willing to like experiment up into his 80s, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. And I didn't really like the Irishman that much, but and I thought the yeah, digital didn't make either of our lists, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the digital de-aging worked but i'm i'm fascinated that scorsese tried it or like it was trying to embrace a type of new technology even though i don't think it totally worked you know that is very soderbergh i guess in that sense like i feel like that i i, I see your comparison there like soderbergh mm -hmm. shoots stuff on just like iphones and it's like yeah this worked for this this movie yeah, which is pretty cool and, you're and like, they're both it? very and they're yeah and they're both just like refuse to stop making movies <laughs> You're like, hey, you're I, to, they're like, we're yeah. making another movie. <laughs> That's what I love yeah. about those guys. I put Ridley Scott in that category too, who just like people who refuse to stop making movies. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be Which interested is pretty to cool. see if that's a dying breed or if there's like a young generation of filmmakers who can be like, yep, yeah, no, I need this amount of money and it's going to be, I'm just going to crank out one of these a year. You're like, whoa. It seems unlikely, but maybe. Yeah, I think it, a lot of it will have to do with, like, the industry itself. Like, if movies become, like, less commonly made, like, there's – or if it becomes so cheap to make movies that you can kind of make them and it's more about getting them financed. Yeah, who knows? I think I think it'll be a tall task. I think making them at this clip, this commercially viable, might be impossible going forward. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just don't think studios are going to trust – young filmmakers with I mean Scorsese got two hundred million dollars to make Killers of the Flower Moon. That I don't think that's ever ever gonna happen again for for like a obviously like a non a non franchise, you know, movie. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. How is it going is it like tracking I, I, I know it's obviously crit, critically received very well. Is it uh -huh. doing commercially well? I mean it's a weird thing because it's being released by Apple for the first time. So there's like mitigating circumstances and then it's going to go to Apple. So I, I'm not sure it can, can be compared directly to other films, but I don't know. How's the tracking looking? Um, so according to Collider, it has uh, grossed an estimated 88 million globally by the end of its second weekend. Um, and, that's not and it bad. had an opening three weekend. Hour... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it had an opening weekend of like a forty-six uh, million. I think. I mean, it seems decent to me, but. And I think knows? that this I is. Think, a, yeah. I think this is a movie that people don't necessarily have to see opening weekend. You know, like 
if they're gonna if if people are instancing this movie they're probably gonna show up even if it's the third or fourth weekend that's out you know so it might have a long tail i think there are uh, also a lot of people who will wait to see it on apple because it's three hours long three and a half <laughs> yeah sorry, sorry. i was friend, giving them i was uh rounding down <laughs> my friend keith uh texted me to see if i wanted to see it this past tuesday and i was like yeah let's do it and then um I didn't look at the runtime until like five minutes before he picked me up. I was like, three hours and 24 minutes. <laughs> I guess there's a big controversy because theaters have been uh, like building in intermissions without the studio's permission. I heard about that. <laughs> so it's like genius. This, yeah. Yeah. Not allowed, man. Not allowed. <laughs> I don't know. I'm down, dude. I think that sounds great. I mean, I feel like it's probably, I feel like if they had like told Scorsese he would have done like a classy intermission where it does like a do-do-do like built in like it's an old film you know kind of like the ending yeah. I yeah. think that's probably the annoying part is like it, it's not done well where it just kind of stops and then it's blank on the screen and then you go and you come back but uh, yeah yeah, three and a half hours I feel like there's got to be some sort of rule like there's no way I can make it three and a half hours while having a slushy, which is what I have when I go to the movies and not go pee just impossible yeah. so i end up having to run to the bathroom <laughs> and it's, it's tough when you're seeing a movie for the first time too because you never know when it's like when is a good time to go like you can guess but you, it's yeah. always a guess that first time i went to the bathroom probably an hour ish in and then i come thinking it was a good time and i come back and then keith leans over to me and he says so the inspector that they sent to washington has been killed and then the guy that they, <laughs> then the guy that they are following up with has been like beaten and run away, and they're now questioning. <laughs> it was like I was like I was gone for like a minute and a half. <laughs> Dang, like, dude, don't be don't movie. be going number two in the in the bathroom <laughs> dude, at the movies. <laughs> oh my god! But as as a I think I timed huh? it pretty well, but I'm not. I think I don't think I actually think I did okay when I ran to the bathroom. You told me you brought a catheter. Crowded theater <laughs> yeah no no it was just a straight up diaper it was just <laughs> i just wet myself and then i continued on for cinema eddie for cinema right 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 <laughs> they, there were some theaters that were selling adult diapers with your ticket yeah it was scorsese's face was on them and it was like the love of the game, right? <laughs> he's like this is what i wear <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's good well by way of um, maybe a lead into talking about Kills of the Flower Moon. What do you feel like is is a recurring? Because I think there's a few recurring themes through many many of Scorsese's, especially his well known movies. But what do you think is like a recurring theme that that jumps out to you with Scorsese's like filmography? I feel like he makes very like he makes films that are like the equivalent to books that get classified as potentially the great American novel. Right? There's a whole subgenre of uh-huh. literature that's like the great American novel. And there's like 500 books in that list that are like, this could be the great American novel, but they all kind of have to do with like um, very American themes. And I would say those, those are kind of both religiosity and like kind of the loss of religiosity or innocence, uh, violence or kind of the, the kind of ignomy of violence and violent men. Um, and also like greed in some sense with like color of money and wolf of wall street and like the american obsession with capitalism and its corruption of the soul 
what would you say? Um, I would say I knew what ignominy meant. <laughs> I didn't have to look it up. But in case our listeners didn't know, ignominy means public shame or disgrace, which I knew. But in case anybody else didn't, that's what that means. Um, I just get called that a lot. So, you know, it like comes into my vocabulary. <laughs> I would say something that yeah, I'd say everything that you said is accurate for sure. Um, as I look at the movies that I wrote down that I really liked of his and then the movies that didn't make, you know, my list, but whether it's King of Comedy or uh, Mean Streets or, you know, whatever, uh, or I guess I listen to Mean Streets, Goodfellas. Um, it's, it's uh, kind of like obsessed men who pursue what they want to its utmost extent. Like, it's not quite, like he doesn't really make movies about psychotic people or like sociopath, but it's it's kind of like taxi normal. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, taxi driver. But it's like, it's more or less like normal men who, um, just get possessed by an idea or get uh, corrupted by an idea and devote their life to the pursuit of it, you know? So whether that's Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York being like a nativist and, and not accepting any sort of like integration of, you know, the, the new Irish uh, people coming into New York or, you know, Wolf of Wall Street and Jordan Belfort just accumulating as much money as he can possibly can or, um, you know, the Jesuit priest in silence trying to find, like, his mentor and, you know, pursuing uh, him to whatever part of Japan he ended up to to figure out the truth of whether he um, apostatized or, uh, or, you know, kills a fireman. Yeah, I think, what do you, would you say that the, obviously, like, several of these are, like, I would say if you associated... Scorsese with a particular type of movie. It would probably a lot of people would say like gangster movies, right? Like mafia gangster movies. Mm. Would you say that that is more like a subgenre? Like I think are those mo- those are mostly like about like greed and violence, right? More than like like the gangs are kind of used as a backdrop to tell stories about individual psychologies, right? And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. And I think a lot of, like a lot of the movies that I would say are like gang films are very like very similar to some of his films that are not that like i would say like taxi driver and raging bull explore very similar themes to some of the movies that are like casino and and goodfellas and those sorts of things yeah i think what scorsese is really talented at is finding good settings that provide like a good container for the theme that he's exploring right so i think for the gangster movies that he did um whether it's Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Irishman, um, you know, the mafia is a really good setting and a really good container for here are the rules, here's the code of conduct, and then here here are the people who succeed. What type of person can succeed in such a cutthroat world? And then that, uh, you know, type of person is like writ large, you know, and then it allows him to explore all of this within the context of, you know, having to, to pay your dues and make your way in, in, in a world where the rules are very clear cut, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's almost the opposite of like Westerns, like Westerns were used to explore different themes about 
humanity in areas where there were no rules, right? It was like the, the right. in what is humankind like when there is an absence of rules? And the, right. the use of the kind of gang setting or the mafia setting is like, what are people like when they're confined to specific rules and caricatures that don't necessarily allow for human, you know, exhibitions of freedom, those sorts of things? Yeah. So, yeah, let's get into Killers of the Flower Moon because I think that that's, that's kind of a nice segue because in some ways, Killers of the Flower Moon is a Western. And in some ways, it's a gangster movie, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say it's one of his, of the movies he's, that I've seen of his, it's the most Western of those. Um, Maybe that's mostly based on the setting, but also the kind of, I guess, silence as well. Um, but hmm. like in terms of themes, I mean, okay. So overall, what did you think? If uh, I guess we haven't said yet. I, I put it on my list, but... Uh, Oh yeah, I mean, I this word is so overused, so I'm really hesitant to say it. I think it was, I think it was phenomenal. I'm trying to figure out if it's a masterpiece or not. I think it's going to age well. I do think it's a masterpiece. You know, like I, I think that there's a lot more to chew on, and I think that, I think it will age well, and I think that it will be revisited. You know, Um, I just hesitate to say to say anything that was just released as a masterpiece, you know, I think time will tell, but I thought it was really, really well done, really well executed. Um, I mean, we can go through the cast and just talk about everything, but um, kind of perfectly cast for being such a long movie. I didn't really feel it too much. I felt it a little bit, you know, maybe three fourths of the way through, but I feel like it kind of earns that runtime, which I'm somebody who likes short movies. So this was, um, you know, a bit of a commitment. Um, I think that uh, you could see every dollar that was spent, you know, it was just so incredibly immaculately shot. Um, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was exceptional. I thought it was remarkable. Do you have a favorite shot? Yeah, it's actually, no, it's not the first shot. It's, I, it's in the first 10 minutes, I think when, um, with the cows, they, <laughs> with the cows, no, they bury this uh, ceremonial pipe, um, uh, yeah. which I had to read about it afterward. You know, I had to look it up. I'm here on the good old Wikipedia. And you get a part of this in the movie, but they're burying this pipe and it's kind of like mourning this assimilation into white society, um, the symbolically, you know. And then right mm-hmm. after that, there's this oil well that just springs up. And then all of the, not all of them, there's a group of Osage that are just dancing and, you know, the oil well is just drenching them and they're like joyous. And it's such a fascinating like confluence of something that's so American, you know, an oil like bursting out of the ground and then something that like an Osage travel dance and that mix of imagery I found. So anyone who's seen this trailer has like seen, you know, this cause it's in the trailer. I find that so fascinating. Yeah, that is a great scene. A brilliant way to, I feel like the, he really turned on the, to like rope people in. I feel like the first hour really had a lot more of the traditional kind of Scorsese flourishes, like some long track, the tracking shot when Leonardo DiCaprio's character shows up at the train station. It's obviously very cool. Um, some of the overhead shots of the like planes and things I thought were just beautiful. Um 
I thought the the scene with the explosion of the house with that was some of I, I think maybe not the shot itself, but the acting around that scene was pretty amazing yeah. as well. Um, and obviously, the, I think probably the most the scene that people I've heard talking about is the kind of death afterlife scene where the the mother kind of passes on. Um, I, I suppose we should say don't listen to this section of the podcast if you haven't seen the movie because uh, we're just going to be spoiling things. But uh, yep. people die, so if you hadn't heard that, figure that out so far. That does happen. Yeah. Um, there's almost like a... Um, I, hesitate, I hesitate to say magic realist because... Well, I'll explain what I mean. You talk about the acting around the um, scene, which we'll talk about, you know, the um, of the house exploding. But it's basically like uh, the Robert De Niro character, King, uh, going by with his accomplice and they see the you know demolition and the the aftermath of it and they're kind of like "Ooh, use too much dynamite you you know like that's their comment <laughs> when they yeah. see just you know the remains of bodies and just an entire uh family exploded um yeah. and i think it's kind of indicative of how uh it's not not just racist it's like it's a racism that was so embedded into their belief system and into their bones that it it becomes entitlement you know it's not even like a question for for these guys that are committing these murders that it's not even a question that this money should be theirs you know like it's 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 really jarring um i haven't i haven't seen like American racism depicted in that type of way really before, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you want to wait to talk about acting, but I thought this, this is the best De Niro performance I've seen in decades. I thought he was amazing in this. I don't know what Scorsese said to him to be like, no, take, take this seriously. I, I said, <laughs> yeah. but people turn it on this Irishman, time. But, <laughs> yeah, but like, holy crap, was he good in this movie? And he has a tough role, like making it both like, like the insidiousness of like pure evil almost while also being like kind of hokey is like really a fine line that I don't know if many people ever could really pull it off. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the fact that uh, you can kind of see his uh, charisma and why a lot of the Osage like him, you know? Yeah. Um, And why he's a friend of many of them and like trusted because there is that kind of like folksiness of like this guy could do you no, know, his guy couldn't hurt a fly. And meanwhile, he's like a mass mm-hmm. murderer. Um, that is hard to pull off, you know? And I think that De Niro does it really, really well in the sense that you leave the movie and you're, and you're like, this guy is a monster. That's indisputable but not in the way that you're like Bill the Butcher's a monster in Gangs of New York, you know? Like, you can't wait to see Bill the Butcher get killed in Gangs of New York because he's so just like malevolent in a way that's so theatrical. Whereas De Niro's malevolence is so kind of like buried under layers of sincerity and like false humility and kind of like paternalistic charm, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's much harder to sell, right? It's, I think there's a lot of people that can just play like just evil. Not that 
like Daniel Day Lewis didn't do a good job. He, he did a great job, and he's one of the greatest living actors. But I think it's much harder to play the character that De Niro played, which is like evil in a human form, like someone who just does evil acts in a way that's still identifiable as like a, a person you might know or just like have run into at the, the mall. I think that's the brilliance of that character. Totally. Um, so I'll just give kind of uh, some uh, basic like beats of the plot uh, real quick. Sounds good. Um, so it takes place in Oklahoma on a reservation, the Osage uh, reservation. And as we mentioned, you know, they strike oil and it's not just like an oil rig. There's a shot where there's like hundreds of oil rigs. Like this is an incredibly oil rich uh, part of the country. And, uh, you know, this area happens to be in a, a reservation. So um, they kind of like overnight become one of the richest per capita people on the planet. And I think the richest. Yeah. And so yeah. to my understanding, um, everybody who was kind of full-blooded Osage, which I think was a couple thousand, had a share of these head rights of, you know, like the, the mineral rights and the oil lease uh, revenues on this reservation. And so, you know, this is a big like topic that comes up throughout the movies, like who owns the head rights and how do you, how does head rights go from uh, one generation to the next? And then what is marrying in due to those head rights and everything. Um, mm -hmm. And so given that these are the richest per capita people in the nation um, and in the world, even a, any percentage of these head rights is extremely valuable, right, uh, monetarily. And so enter the scene, Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, returning from World War One, where it kind of sounds like he was, like, working in the kitchen and, like, doing gapey duty the whole time, you know? He was not fighting on the front lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he lives, uh, he returns to live with his uncle, William Hale, William King Hale, as his nickname's King, uh, played by Robert De Niro. And uh, King has a, you know, big estate uh, that's on the reservation and has a lot of cattle, um, but doesn't have any oil rights. Um, and doesn't seem to have any oil on his land. And so uh, King, you know, uses the arrival of Ernest to kind of hatch this plot to, um, inherit head rights uh, to some of this oil money. And so he kind of arranges for uh, Ernest to pick up and kind of chauffeur Molly, um, who is an Osage woman, a uh, single Osage woman, and is, you know, the inheritor of head rights. And, you know, once there's kind of a romance that kindles between Ernest and Molly, um, people start dying and being murdered. And under kind of mysterious circumstances, um, you know, in the dead of night, uh, shot, poisoned. And these are all Osage who are um, related in some way to Molly. So the idea being, you know, the less Osage, the more the um, head rights get consolidated around fewer and fewer individuals. And then if you marry into that and, you know, 
something happens to you know this the Osage spouse, then those rights then go to um, you know the the white spouse, and then um, they then pass on to their children. So this uh, series of murders obviously raises a lot of suspicion with uh, the Osage people. They try to get um, an investigator to look into who these who this murderer is. The investigator, I believe the first one gets killed going to or from Washington. The second one they hire uh, gets beaten by Ernest and a group uh, of you know his accomplices, I believe his brother Byron too in that scene, and then gets chased out of the town. And so there's two investigators that kind of disappear and uh, these murders just continue to happen. Molly's sister gets killed, uh, you know, shot by one of uh, King's associates. Um, and then her other sister gets blown up with her husband and uh, her mother dies. And so with each, you know, death, more and more head rights go to Molly, who's now married to Ernest. They've built a family. And you just see this unraveling um, of this community and just like the continuous grief. And, um, and then finally, like the, uh, this is around the inception of the FBI. And so like an FBI investigator gets sent to the town uh, with a team and they start interviewing and like doing it methodically. And then they start to like put the pieces together and see that, you know, King is, behind all of this and using you know his nephews uh ernest and his brother byron to like carry out a lot of these crimes and then um yeah uh ernest gets kind of called in for questioning he's going to give king up um and then he gets dissuaded from it but then his uh ernest's uh, child dies from like whooping cough and somehow which we can talk about later he has this like change of heart and decides to testify against king and then there's this kind of um, uh, epilogue that we can talk about too, which I thought was really interesting. So those are kind of like the overarching uh, plot points, but then we can get into talking about how just um, the specifics of these, you know, MERS were carried out or, you know, the cover-ups and all the imagery that was uh, on display. Yeah, that's a great summary. I would also just mention for people who don't know, which is probably no one, but just in case, uh, th it's a based on a book by David Grant, and it's a tr like everything is true. It's I think a story that Scorsese said he wanted, like wanted to tell the true story um, of kind of these terrible murders, and I think playing into the kind of great American novel aspects of the of the film, kind of the corruption of America and what the foundations that at least like white America and America, the country is built on um, that I think he sees and is kind of trying to reckon with in this story. Um, but yeah, I think also uh, the one thing I mentioned, I think there were also like several murders outside of this particular family. Like the right. book and the movie are based on these murders, but I think there were like at the beginning of the movie, they show several murders that had occurred like prior to the, the like, sequences that take place in the film but like weren't investigated obviously yeah i think it had almost up to 30 um i'd have to check on that exactly but that's like 30 uninvestigated murders in the same what you know 20 square mile i mean i don't know how big the reservation is but like in a small community that's yeah staggering heartbreaking 
Um, so and and I think the, the crazy thing is like that they're not like well planned. Like I think this comes back. Like this is part of the theme of the movie. It's like they're not like super genius. Like I think a lot of these movies and books are like about great attempts to get away with murder. That is very much not what this is. This is like a bunch of really corrupt, evil people just trying to get money with very obvious murders because they think they can get away with it and they don't value the lives of those age people. Yeah, I think what's tragic is that um, how unsecretive they feel like they can be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how like clumsy and, everyone is. and stupid yeah. so yeah. many of these people are. Like Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest, is like, he is, he is a dim person. <laughs> he is uh, but he says he really not intelligent. How could he be dumb? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and all the accomplices that they hire to do these jobs, like carry them out poorly in terms of like they're, uh, it's very obvious, you know, there's one murder where the guy's supposed to make it look like a suicide and he shoots him in the back of the head. It doesn't even make any sense how that could be a suicide. Yeah, I don't you think know. he leaves the gun, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't even leave the gun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, I think a big part of this too, is just how these, um, murders are occurring more or less, you know, in, in plain view in terms of, uh, there's very little like, um, thought put into how these could be covered up other than just being like, Oh, well, this must happen, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. I think that yeah, it very much plays into the theme that it's more about complicitness and corruption and the kind of evilness of the capitalist ideal rather than some sophisticated plot to get away with murder. Yeah, totally. And it's um, it's it's a type of complicity that is strictly based on money. It's not even, at least from my reading of the film, not even that based on fear. Like King isn't somebody who has an an army of gangsters like threatening to like kill people's families if they speak up or don't. Or even like blackmail or anything like that, right? Yeah. No, they just straight up take money and don't really ask questions and just kind of go along with it. You know, in terms of like the doctors who, um, so Molly, the Osage woman that uh, Ernest, um, played by Lily Gladstone, who she should get an Oscar for this. Like, I assume she will. She was incredible. It's a super uh, tough role, too, because she has to be sick for, like, 40% of her time on screen, and I, I think she pulls it off. Totally. So she uh, has diabetes, and um, I guess this is around the invention of insulin. So she's, like, getting insulin injections. Um, and then doctors, you know, under King's um, behest, uh, also prescribe her this kind of nefarious substance. It's basically poison. And then they like slowly poison her with the insulin through Ernest administering like the shots. Um, so those doctors like know what they're doing and they're just like taking the money, you know? And I, yeah. that is the case for so many of the, you know, people collaborating with um, King on this. So I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I mean, should we talk about Leo's performance? Absolutely. Just, I think I told you on this uh, this on the phone the other day, but for somebody as famous as Leonardo DiCaprio, for me to not think 
on the screen. So like when I'm, when I'm watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and there's Brad Pitt playing some stunt guy, I'm like, yeah, it's fun, but it's Brad Pitt. That's all I'm thinking about. You know, it's when I watch Leonardo DiCaprio play any role, I genuinely like forget that it's him. I'm just so immersed in what he, the character that he's putting on the screen and his vocal dynamics and the way his face will change to express whatever his character is expressing. There's a couple little things that are very like DiCaprio-isms in terms of like how he runs or how he like inflects something, but those are so like minor. <laughs> I was, just, yeah, I was blown away. He's incredible. His, like, I mean, not every movie he's been in is a hit, obviously, but he does have a very high hit rate. His choice of characters is so broad. Um, and this, would you say, I'm trying to think, obviously I think the character that he plays with Tarantino, um, as like the slave owner is like, I'm probably more like outwardly evil, but I would say this is one of the more difficult characters to portray. Um, just because you have to like portray both like the conflicted nature of the character who seems to kind of genuinely love his wife, but is also undertaking all these like genuinely horrible deeds at the same time um and is also kind of an idiot and to kind of pull that all off is is quite brilliant definitely in his top i mean top three performances of all time i would say yeah i'd agree and that's saying something in his career yeah, obviously includes. yeah yeah he's one of um i think it's kind of like a magic trick how he's able to kind of convince us that he genuinely loves his wife even as he's poisoning her and being and killing his sister or her sister and doing all these like abominable things and being entirely kind of like the worst human being that you could be but somehow at the end of it there's some sort of sympathy or some sort of like genuine undeniable like love that he has for his wife that comes through the performance and and certainly through their chemistry um and you feel and then that really informs how you know i view molly in terms of she was in love with this man and she knew that he loved her while also eventually becoming aware and obviously divorcing him um but becoming aware of like what he did and her internal like struggle and uh, Willie Gladstone's kind of conveying of that through, you know, the scene at the end where, you know, she kind of references that she might be able to stomach the egregious things that he did if he were just willing to admit everything. But he stopped short of admitting that he, you know, took the doctor's quote unquote, you know, medicine and injected in her like on purpose or like knew what he was doing. But there's, there's like a tension in that scene at the end where, it's almost like you want you you legitimately wonder watching it if he were to admit that he did that, but that he still loved her if she would accept him and take him back, and that is something to again something you could write a dissertation about. Like that, I've never seen a a, a marriage um, depicted in quite that way. You know. I like the hints that they kind of give about like that. That's the, like the theme is about this conflicted like nature in the beginning where he's trying to court her and she, you know, one of her sisters is like, well, he just wants money. And 
And she's like, well, everyone here just wants money. But I think he also, <laughs> you know, there are second things that he wants, wants to settle down. To money. Yeah. Not that he's right. not that he doesn't want money, but like, of course, yes, that is his primary goal. But and I think that's such like an interesting way of viewing like love, you know? Yeah, totally. It's um I think it was also an interesting just like layer to um the depiction of the SH people being like they weren't <laughs> oblivious to the fact that all these white people wanted their money. Like they were aware of it and very much yeah. aware of it. Yeah. As they were trying to build some sort of community with the whites, you know. Right. Um yeah, I think um those three performances really define the movie. Uh Leonardo DiCaprio playing Ernst Burkhart. Um and then uh Lily Gladstone playing uh Molly's I'm blanking on Molly's uh last name. Um and then was... uh, Molly Kyle. Yeah. Is that right? Um, yeah. Huh. And uh, Robert De Niro playing, uh, you know, King William Hale. Um, outside of that, I mean, there's like a lot of um, kind of character actors playing. I don't know. I, I got the sense that a lot of the other cast, they just went to you know, the Oklahoma boondocks and we're like, Hey, you want to be in a Scorsese movie? Just be you. (laughs) Well, that's like, I was, I was like most impressed because I mean the, obviously there's tons of Osage people, but there's just like not that many Osage people. So it's a tough, like you're just pulling from such a narrow group to get great actors. And I thought they were all amazing. (laughs) No, they were great. That's like helpful that Scorsese is there to like coach you. But like for people that have very few credits, if any, I was like, wow, these, like I've generally, Everything that you're saying, I totally buy, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I I was even, I was talking about more just like the, um, like the the rednecks who became like the murderers. Like some of those guys, I'm like, have they been working actors in Hollywood? (laughs) Well, the the only one, the only one I had to look up, which only, and it wasn't because he wasn't doing a great job. It was just like, I was like, is that Jason Isbell? (laughs) I was sitting there, I was like, very, I was like, is it like that guy looks exactly like Jason Isbell? Mm. Uh, and I yeah, was the, like, the, the uh, <laughs> husband to her sister, yeah. And then I, I had to look at, I like looked, that was the only one I looked up in the theater. And I was like, holy shit, that's Jason Isbell. <laughs> I thought yes. he was great, but that was the only huh. one that took me out only because I didn't know he acted at all. And I was like, that guy either looks exactly like Jason Isbell or like cast Jason Isbell in like a pretty major role in this movie, yeah. Wow, um. Yeah, Brendan Fraser uh, was so good as the attorney. I think There's he this... only had like five lines, but they were great. <laughs> he was so good. Well, because There's... I had seen that that he was like one of the top billed people, and I was like, this movie is almost over. I was like, there can't be more than thirty minutes left, and he hasn't even shown up. Like, how could he? Is it just going to be like, did I miss him? Yeah. And he was in like, <laughs> like crazy, like yeah. facial uh, makeup or something, and then he comes on. I was like, ah, okay. I see. I see what's happening. We're we're thirteen hours in this movie, and Brendan Fraser hasn't shown <laughs> yeah, up yet. I was like thinking, I was like, because when Jesse Plemons shows up, it's already like two and a half hours in. And I was like, man, like he comes in pretty late, and he's like one of the top billed people. And then, yeah, and then yeah, Brendan Fraser comes in with like twenty minutes to go. I mean, he's great. He kills it with his lines. But uh, it's, I'm it's also realizing rare. that uh, the cowboy guy who was the accomplice, he like gave them the contact for the bomb maker was Sturgill right. Simpson, the country music um, huh. 
so there's like multiple singer songwriters who are yeah that's pretty big roles in this movie yeah weird um so yeah i mean the cast was uh was great there were some scenes that were could only have been rendered by a an um, incredible film director and one of the scenes that I'm thinking about is when Ernest comes back, I think from meeting with the FBI and being interrogated for, you know, whole night or whatever. Um, he comes to King's house and I think he just thinks that he's going to have dinner with his uncle or something, but there's basically the entire um, white, uh, <laughs> yeah, like complicit, like evil crew. In the room. That was some witness and the, tampering. Yeah. And, and the way that it's lit and the way that it's shot, and for anyone who's seen the trailer, they'll recognize the shot from the trailer. It's It really does look like a pack of wolves, you know, um, all looking at him. And you feel how intimidating that room is and how insidious and just venomous. Uh, like, it, it was, I don't know, it was really, it was like out job, of a horror movie. Yeah. I think it's very hard to get a, like, I think most people are like, well, obviously you got to testify. That's the right thing. But I think it did a great job of being like, there are, is a lot of pressure on these people and you can understand why, even if they know it's right, they might not, or can rationalize the right thing being to not testify, you know? Yeah. Well, so after that, he changes his mind. He's not going to testify against his uncle. But then when his daughter dies, he has a change of heart and he decides to, I don't, quite know why like i i don't know if i put the pieces together of like why did his daughter die and it had nothing to do with anybody like killing his daughter it was just like a it's it was the whooping cough but i think somehow seemed, that broke him i think it seemed more like it he kind of realized there was absolutely no way he was going to be able to get back with his wife if he te- it didn't justify Got it. And I yeah. think like he just kind of broke and was like, really, I just want to get back to my wife, like especially with his family kind of falling apart. That's kind of how I read it. It was like it was more on the theme of like the like love versus the commitments and the social pressure. But yeah, yeah that's just my interpretation. I mean, it's like no, that's, that's kind of the thing is like there are, these aren't rational like smart people doing the right thing all the time. It's like people having chains of hearts like real people and it's i mean it's a true story so i think it's more just trying to read into the psychology more than it depicting like a version of what you know he's presenting of the person you know yeah every time um an osage died they were very kind of serenely like shot from above and lit and their arms were by their sides and their face was very just, um, I don't know, like peaceful and kind of like ashen. Um, do you notice that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the specifically kind of, that's where you would get the magical realism, right? With the owl and- Right, yeah. So there's there's a lot of, um, I think the, maybe not the mythicism, but the kind of cultural beliefs of the afterworld and the Osage are pulled in yeah. to give them more meaning, yeah. And I, th- I thought that that was like beautifully done. But then there's a scene when um, they lift the body of, because even, you know, in the house that blew up, like the sister 
her body's like mainly intact yeah 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 and she's like that but then they pick her up and like the brain's like full at the back of her head and you're oh, like Jesus. reminded yeah, I totally forgot about that you're reminded in that instance like this is not like this is killing like this is the juxtaposition brutality. of the serenity yeah. of the yeah, exactly and the, yeah. the murder yeah of the the brutality of like the here and now versus the yeah serenity like the peace of the afterlife which her her mom kind of goes makes that transition very peacefully in that scene that you mentioned um where she kind of follows her elders into like out of her deathbed but um you know for the others you know they find uh one one of the osage who's just shot in the back of the head and then is in a pool of uh oil and in an all-white suit you know right and um it just visually wise there's a lot of visuals almost like still photos from that where the camera would linger for several seconds and somehow it's kind of imprinted on my mind in a way that other movies or even other Scorsese movies aren't quite you know okay so I don't know if you wanted to since we're at an hour and 15, do you want to shift towards like a little bit of Oscar, not predictions, but like if we were hosting the Oscars, because I think the, this is basically competing with Oppenheimer for a bunch of these awards, right? Best actor. I thought we were going, actress. I thought we agreed this episode would be three hours and 24 minutes to match the <laughs> runtime. That's true. That's true. But uh, I think the second half is just going to be me walking through in detail the Margot Robbie scene in Wolf of Wall Street. I thought that's what we agreed on. But with the Nutty Professor standing in, that version of it. Yeah, I've still never seen this scene, but maybe uh, you can describe it to me off here. <laughs> I will. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so who, first of all, who do you think is going to win Best Picture and Best... I mean, it doesn't have to be those two, but I think those are the main, the main two competitors. Best Picture this year and Best Director. I don't think there's going to be much competition outside of these two movies, you know, in terms of for those the two pictures. for the big awards. I think these yeah. are the the two, the two. Yeah. Um. So. I think best picture goes to Kills the Flower Moon. I think best director goes to Scorsese. I think best actor really? goes to Killian Murphy. Um. I think Best Actress goes to uh, Lily Gladstone. I'm going to say, other than Best Actor, it's going to be a sweep for Kills with Fire Moon in terms of like the major characters. Wow. But I'm also biased okay. because like I, I like Oppenheimer, but I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily like a a great cinematic achievement. I think it's like a good a good Nolan movie. I don't think it's going to have staying power in the way that this movie will. I think you are going to be right in the long run i think oppenheimer does better i think it'll be looked at like in the long term like yes oppenheimer was a great movie but killers of Moon was a masterpiece that would be my guess in the long run but i do think but oppenheimer for... will do better in the short run um i think nolan because he hasn't had the the kind of critical success that he's had um on the like I guess the the kind of financial or like public side. I think Killian Murphy wins for best actor. I think I think Nolan's gonna win for best director. I could see Killers of Farmer winning for best picture, but 
I wouldn't be surprised if Oppenheimer also won for that. And to be fair, I, I really liked Oppenheimer and I need to watch it again. Uh, but I thought this movie was more of a like a statement about like a perfectly executed statement on a theme in a way that I thought Oppenheimer's had some kind of glaring problems, even if it had some probably some bigger highs in terms of the kind of emotional experience of the film. I think Scorsese trusts his audience is uh, smart enough to understand and unpack what's being presented to them. And Nolan thinks that we're stupider. <laughs> he thinks I that think he needs this, to explain what we're thing, watching. The difference is that Scorsese doesn't care. Like, I think <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street, like, I think the thing is, like, if people come, like, ask him, like, oh, are you afraid, like, people are going to take it seriously? I think he's just like, well, those people are idiots. Like, I, I'm not here to, like, get everyone to understand the theme. I'm here to make movies for people who, like, get it and are, like, going to follow on the right way. Not that I have to spoon feed people to like getting my message. It's like, if you don't get it, you don't get it. I don't, I don't care about you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I feel like that's more the difference. Like Nolan genuinely cares if you're like, you're getting what he's saying. Whereas I think Scorsese doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> I just, I don't know, man. Like, I know. I liked Oppenheimer. It's just Scorsese when there's this critical scene where Molly's deciding, am I still going to stomach all of this atrocity because I love this man and stay with him? He trusts his actors and he trusts that Lily Gladstone is going to convey that emotion in her expression and like, and pull it off. And that we're going to understand based on uh, that shot and in that acting. Nolan you know, in maybe is a, a similar situation. When Emily Blunt, you know, Oppenheimer's wife is uh, confronted with something atrocious that he did, right? So like cheating on her with uh, the uh, psychiatrist. Um, rather than just trusting Emily Blunt, another brilliant actor to, you know, convey that and just the, searing uh expression of her eyes and the way her lips move he also has to like put <laughs> um florence Pugh again on top of uh oppenheimer so that we know that's what she's imagining as she's hearing this and i'm like okay god all right dude <laughs> i i actually think that because of our moon would have been made like maybe twice as good if at the end when he testified they looked over and said you know who stood up and got the fbi here and then he looked at the camera and said a young senator from massachusetts named john Uh, let me see it's a young senator from massachusetts named john f kennedy oh my god yeah that's what was so bad that was one that straight up took me out that was just the that was the one flaw of this film was we didn't have an Alden Ehrenreich audience avatar character to explain all the stuff we should feel. Anyhow, enough shitting on Oppenheimer. Um, yeah, kills with our man. I'm. I think you're probably right. Actually, I think I'm more wishful thinking. I think you're right. No one's gonna gonna bag the best director, and then 
Killian Murphy just deserves the best actor. Like, so that, you know, no qualms there. Um, and then, and then I, I do think Killers gets best picture. I think it's just a more important movie and just means more, you know, than Oppenheimer, just the subject matter, you know, and it's, and it's also better executed. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, either way, I think it'll go down as like a very good film year. I think it's an interesting film year where like, especially with um, Napoleon coming out, it's just like historical epics from like long running directors about like historical figures or events. I think it's interesting. Like I feel like there hasn't been a year like this in at least a few years where there's like these big kind of like classically directed films about like old thematic events or people um, right. which is cool i mean obviously these are much more interesting films even when they don't always come off which i'm like i'm a little skeptical about napoleon but like the fact that they're trying those things and trying to make these big films that aren't necessarily like action films is pretty cool i watched the trailer for napoleon uh you know before uh, uh kills the fireman came out and i just yeah. turned to keith and i was like it's hard not to think that Ridley Scott just made a movie about Napoleon to say this guy's dope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ridley Scott, dude, freaking Gladiator kicked ass. So I'm I'm holding out hope. Gladiator kicked ass, but it wasn't like, you know, you know who's really dope, the Roman Emperor who's killing all these people. And Gladiator was kind like, of a subversive yeah. movie to some degree. That's true. I feel like Gladiator gets a bad rap where like people think of it and they're like, oh, it's just like a like an action film but then you watch god and you're like this movie freaking rips like this movie's yeah, it's awesome a, uh, no, it's, yeah. it's an so, awesome movie i don't, I don't know, know if it's know. like i don't know if gladiator is like capital g great but it's a hell of a ride you know it's real fun dude i feel like I, that's how i think but then every time i finish watching it i'm like that's a freaking awesome great movie like <laughs> i feel like it holds up really like a lot better i think in the culture it's yeah. less good than the actual film when you watch like all all other movies could perish tomorrow <laughs> if only this one remained and i would be happy i mean so alex Cossey, who i i don't know if he listens to this podcast or not but he used to have three movies that at his house and one of them was the matrix and one of them was gladiator and we used to watch those all the time and i think he did a great job curating his like three movie collection because to this day i watch gladiator and i'm like hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) let's go (laughs) so yeah well we can make a We'll have to. Well, what's the next movie we're going to do on this? Is there any movies coming out soon? I want to yeah. see The Killer by Fincher. I want to see The Killer too. Fly over um, here and we'll watch it. Hell yeah, let's do it, dude. Uh, yeah, is there anything else coming out before the end of the year that we we might pot about? I mean, we're pretty close to the end of the year. I'm trying to think if there's any notable. I can't think of anything like Christmas time wise coming out that I'm, you know. Like we already had our Wes Anderson, um, yeah. I don't. Yeah, uh, I. You know, PTA's got nothing this year. Tarantino's got nothing. Um, I really like Past Lives. Um, I watched that a few days ago. I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. Um, you might check that out. I need to watch it. A bunch of people told me to watch. I know it's on my list. I feel like people have made it seem like it's going to be really sad and I struggle to like get myself to watch movies like that. <laughs> I will. I, will no, I wouldn't it. say it's, I wouldn't say it's really sad. I think it's like, 
I think it's I think it's like a fascinating portrayal of like a relationship, you know, in a way I haven't quite seen okay. before. I think it's okay. really really good. All right, I will say I'm going to give a shout out to a show I have not seen that I'm very excited for, uh, which is A Murder at the End of the World, which is going to come out on FX next month. Okay. Uh, mostly because Clive Owen has a starring role, and I freaking love me some Clive Owen. Uh, yeah, I love Clive. The, the show looks pretty good, so uh, I'm hoping that that lives up to the hype because I've heard good early reviews. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Word, dude. Well, I think we we pretty much uh, solved it. The academy should give us a call. We'll sort out the awards. And uh, yeah, it's a brilliant film. If you haven't seen it, you probably shouldn't have listened to this. But I still recommend you go watch it. Um, and for those who maybe if you have friends or family that haven't seen it, I think it comes out on Apple next month, so they can see it that way if they're afraid of going to a three hour and a half movie at the movie theater. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to picture rewatching this movie and I just I don't know how or when, you know, like when a movie's this long I'm I would I'd like to revisit it because I do think it would reward rewatching, but I'm not sure. I don't know. So I think if you watch it once, like at least give it once and um see what you think i think it's a i think it's a really important like artifact of american history i wouldn't have otherwise known about you know so like there's the scene where they watch you know in the 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 people of the town are watching a newsreel of the tulsa massacre in 1921 of black wall street and it was basically this race riot where a bunch of jealous white people just murdered dozens of uh black businessmen and black business owners um in tulsa and you know by the juxtaposition of that there's kind of a correlation being made here obviously to um what's happening in the osage but i learned about that not through the like three years of u.s history that we went through in the public school system i learned about it by watching Watchmen, the hbo series that came out a few years ago i'd never heard of the tulsa that was really good show very very good show and so i'm like i'm i think there's something important that this movie with the budget it has and with how many screens it's being run on and like the the press and the marketing it's getting that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be made aware of something that very very few people were probably aware of before this movie happened you know